When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. We have a real treat for you today. Introducing The Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, former Director of Communications at the White House under Trump's presidency for a whopping 11 days. He joins us in our London studio with Josh Lowe, Deputy Editor of Apolitical. Daniel was the producer of this week's podcast. Daniel, a great conversation to have today. Absolutely. The man, the legend, the mooch. What a better way to look at the Trump presidency than through his communications director. Even though he lasted in his role for only 11 days, he's still a good friend of the president. He speaks to him regularly. And he's very much in tune with the current mood of the administration. So post midterms, we thought it'd be fascinating to hear his take on American politics today. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you do enjoy it, or indeed, if you don't, please do leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. It helps us know what you think and helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much. Let's go straight to the discussion. Hello, I'm Josh Lowe, Deputy Editor at Apolitical. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Anthony Scaramucci, otherwise known as The Mooch, former White House Director of Communications under President Donald Trump. Anthony, welcome. How are you doing? Hey, it's great to be here. Now, you served as Director of Communications at the White House for often reported as 10 days. You correct that in your book, as is your right to 11 days. Um, uh for an 11 day stint um that i can guess we, can we formalize that on the podcast we just like can i explain it okay so if you start do, on, yeah. if you start on the 21st of july yeah you work a full day okay and then you work a full day on the 31st of july count the days it's not 10 days it's it's, it's 11 days I, mean, I don't understand to... why there's so much fake news about this stuff okay and it it hurts my feelings at this point but okay keep going no, no, no. I'm, I'm with you. 11 days. We're going with 11 days, but it's an infamous stint in the White House, I guess it's fair to say. And you write in the book about political hit jobs on you, about backstabbing in D.C. At the end of it all, how Trump had to, in your phrase, uh, toss you out like an empty Big Mac box. Um, how did it feel after being right at the center of the world's attention, right in the, the place where all the action is, 
to suddenly have it all taken well, away. Well, you know, so I said I said other things too. I mean, I I I sort of illustrate in the book that I made like legions of mistakes. You know, if I've made eleven or twelve phone books of mistakes in my life, I probably made five phone books of mistakes inside the White House. But the main mistake that I made was that I looked at it the way a corporate CEO or an entrepreneurial CEO would look at the job. And so when the president hired me, he said, okay, look, we got a terrible situation here. We have a ton of leaking going on. Uh, the RNC people that Reince Priebus flooded into the comms team was overwhelming and warring with the Trump loyalists. And so I I had, I had was tasked with the job to see if I could knit those two cultures together. And so uh, the two biggest leaguers were Priebus and Bannon. And so you know the president knew that. And so I got tasked with the job of removing them. In the meantime, they didn't want me there. You know, my my original job was the OPL director's job. And so uh, I made a ton of mistakes. I, I needed to have handled it more like a pro- Washington political operative and less like a business leader. And so that, you know, look, I mean, among many mistakes, that's the biggest one that I made. But, you know, leaving the White House or being in the White House uh, and, quote, unquote, being at the center of attention, I'm, I'm sort of good either way. You know, I, I at the end of the day... I've had this uh, accidental entrance into politics. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, built two reasonably successful businesses. I started out as a media surrogate for the president when there seemed to be a shortage of media surrogates. This was when he was a candidate. And so I wasn't planning on even going into the administration. It wasn't until after he won, which surprised many of us, by the way, including yeah. him, if he's being honest about it. Uh, that Wednesday, he indicated to me that he wanted me to come in and work in the administration. And so I said, OK. And I th- thought about how he's going to go about doing that. When And it was kind of accidental in a sense, I get. You're quite – you're quite. Remember, I was supposed to be the president's OPL director, right? I was supposed yeah, to be yeah. his uh, chief networking officer. Yeah, and you, you're quite – you know, in the book, you make clear that you're not um, the biggest fan of political – Types, you know, you there's a there's no. I hate these people. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a fan. What, I hate these people. These are horrific people. What's what's wrong with them? You've never never met people like this. I mean, don't go into politics. I mean, these are uh, jealous, petty, insecure, diabolical, amoral, ruthless people. I mean, the reason why your entire situation is screwed up on this island is because the people are exactly the same like they are in Washington. I mean, that's what they're like, and so. They actually care more about power. These people care more about power than they do the people that they're supposedly serving. Okay, so these are horrific people. It's like literally the Game of Thrones screenwriters get together with like the House of Cards screenwriters, but that's not enough. They got to add the Hunger Games people to that, right? And then that's not even enough. They got to add the Veep people because there's got to be a little bit of comedy in this thing, right? So it's a it's a disgusting group of people. So the power corrupts them. And then in addition to that, um, they go after each other because the stakes are so small. So I just want you to imagine, Josh, you hate my guts. I hate your guts. There's a billion dollars on the table. Mm -hmm. You and I have to figure out a way to subordinate our egos and get along with each other to split $500 million each. Do you think you and I are going to be able to figure that out? Not if we hate each other's guts. Really? You're not going to want to subordinate your ego and your wishes to kill me to get $500 million? I personally like to think I could, but uh, okay. The kind of right, well, I hope the guy, I hope the guy that you could. I mean, I think I could do that. Okay, yeah. but these people are fighting over who's going to sit next to the president on Air Force One. You see, the stakes are so small that they'll pick each other's eyeballs out with an ice pick. Terrible, terrible people. Never, never met people. And by the way, the president has said as much. He said to Leslie Stahl three or four weeks ago. He said, "Hey, I thought the real estate people in New York were killers." 
until I got here to Washington, the, the real estate people in New York are a bunch of babies compared to these people. These people are horrific animals. So it's often described, never met anybody like that in my life. I mean, we have them a little bit here. You just you've just summed up no, our, you our situation. Them. You but, got them here. Look at the situation here. Your your so you're, country. You're not a Brexit you're, fan because the president's a Brexit fan. He's not really a Brexit fan. He's he's a he's a pro populist fan, but he's not really a Brexit fan. If you go through, remember, I'm running. Eleven and a half to twelve billion dollars, depending on where the market's moving. If you go through the Liz pendants of assets and liabilities of Brexiting, it's terrible for your country. You you know that you're an educated guy. I'm just looking at the horn rim glasses that you're wearing. You're obviously very educated. You go through the list. Okay, it's a disaster for your country. So what I don't understand is you don't have the right leadership in the country where people are going to say, okay, time out a second. Let's get to a wall board and explain to the people in Manchester or in Liverpool and these people that may have voted for Brexit what this means to the country. Now, I get the issues around immigration and the Eastern European migration and things like Some that. Some of which are not as similar as the issues that, that Trump's campaign you, you, You're but. telling me that you guys can't cut a deal, stay in the EU and figure out a way to slow down some of the migration? Well, I, mean, I just think it's a disaster. So, so very bad leadership. The people want to stay in power more than they want to serve the people. Uh, and it's a disgusting group of people. You know that. I mean, come on. You, your people know that. The reason why they voted for the Brexit and the reason why Donald Trump became the president is they hate these people. They hate these establishment people that have borrowed a ton of money, uh, crippled the system for their own gain uh, while the middle and lower middle class people are suffering and have we, declining wages. I want to get on to the, the, the book a bit um, because uh, – so you come from a blue-collar background, Italian-American background, Long Island. Uh, you've called your book Trump, the blue-collar president. Um, I want to come on to talk in a second about that idea of the blue-collar president. First, I've got to ask, why does someone as rich as you, out of government, why, why do you write a book like this? It's a stirring book, a little bit of personal story, a little bit of praise for the president. you thinking about running for office sometime? No, I wrote, I wrote the book because I think it's very necessary for people to see what I saw. And I write very honestly in the book that my journey from my blue-collar family to the level of wealth that I've attained in the society has left me distant to those voices. And so what I write in the book is that you sit around with very rich people and you listen to their confirmed biases and you start thinking and acting like them. And it wasn't until I got on the campaign that I realized how much economic devastation had been wreaked in the society for people that were uneducated, didn't get the right jobs training, or may have grown up in my neighborhood and didn't have my journey to Tufts and Harvard Law School and Goldman Sachs. And so um, I write very honestly in the book that there's a guy named Donald J. Trump who saw this and saw it in a palpable way. And I write also in the book that there were 18 candidates in the 2016 election. Only two of them saw it. It was him and Bernie Sanders. Everybody else missed it. And so – and I'm honest about it. I missed it too. And, and But for my journey into the campaign, I wouldn't have seen it. And so I thought I had an interesting voice to write as somebody that grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood whose father was an hourly worker, to rise to the level that I've risen to. I think I can understand both sides. I can understand why the elites hate Trump or President Trump and I can understand why the people in my neighborhood like him. And I think it's just an important discussion to have with people – uh, around the world, not just in the United States, but here in London or on the continent or wherever I go, that people want to talk about it. And we'll get on to Trump 
in a sec. Um, but I, I'm just interested. You say there, as you do in the book, but I'm not running for office. No, my wife is through <laughs> categorical the gla- denial. My wife is through the glass over. I'm trying to stay married to her. See that? I mean, so what happens is if you run for office, she's not actually your, watching. They she's put not. your feet. Yeah, she's not paying attention because that's why we're staying married because she doesn't pay attention to me. Okay, but what happens is they put your feet in a sausage grind, and they grind you down at the chopped meat. You understand what happens? It sounds like sounds yeah, like you've got terrible. a clear understanding. Yeah, um, terrible we'll, place. We'll get on to Trump. So I'm, not, be- I'm not running for office, but I do think it's important for people to understand what is going on and why the elites and the establishment are failing the society. We'll get back on to Trump. But you mentioned there Bernie Sanders and how he spotted something that Trump spotted. If it had been Bernie v. Trump, could mm-hmm. he have won? It would have been closer uh, because he was a more passionate candidate. But you see, what killed Hillary Clinton in so many different ways is that uh, she couldn't get the crossover voting. Once they exposed that Herbert and Debbie Wasserman Schultz were rigging the system to guarantee her nomination for the Democrats, uh, many of Bernie Sanders' voters defected and did not vote in the 2016 election. If Hillary Clinton had gotten the same number of crossover voters that she gave to Barack Obama in 2008 from Bernie Sanders, she would have resoundingly been the president of the United States. But she was so corrupt and they were running such a corrupt rigged system that people stepped out of it and they decided not to vote. So back to that blue collar president. been a lot closer though. Yeah. Would back to that blue collar president idea. And there's a bit where you kind of introduce that phrase in the book. You go to a Trump rally and I think it's Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say that these people recognized in him um, their billionaire blue collar president. And you, you make that kind of oxymoron mm-hmm. phrase, I guess. He's billionaire and he's blue collar. And this is something that a lot of people, I guess it's fair to say some of the more privileged people who work in the media or as political commentators don't really get. They don't get how this person um, who grew up uh, with a with a golden walls and a golden toilet seat um, can can look yeah, like no, he's hey, hey, listen, blue collar. And how, how does that work? It. It's not even that. Okay, You have to understand, he himself is not blue collar. I, I titled the book Blue Collar sure. President because I wanted to cause a explosion inside the melon of every left-wing media star. Sure. But I think I knew, you're right. I knew, the blue-collar people see well, him Well, the blue-collar people, yeah. Somehow I mean, represents the guy, values, The guy's so. apartment looks like Louis XIV decorated yeah. it after he smoked crystal meth, right? So we know he's not blue-collar himself. What we know is, though, he was able to gravitate to these people. And so what I write in the book, which contemporary politicians should pay attention to, people that are running for office – is that there was a 35 to 40-year vacuum in the United States of advocacy for these people. So the establishment Republicans said, we don't need these people. We're favoring the rich and we're going to give them tax cuts and we're going to coddle them and they're our donor base and then we're going to bring in the evangelicals. And the Democrats said, you know, there was a dolphin that choked on a plastic straw and so let's move the entire environmental movement over to paper straws even though you need five paper straws per one plastic straw. And then you have icebergs melting in the North Pole and they got very upset about that. So they wanted to focus on that. And then they got very upset about transgender bathrooms and who should go to which bathrooms at what time. And so while they were doing all that, and I'm not saying those things aren't important. They clearly are. They left out of the equation the middle class and the lower middle class who are struggling in our country. The wages are literally down on real economic terms about 30 percent. And so now the Democrats – are calling those people deplorable, white nationalists, ethnocentrics. Is that really? Is that what you guys want to do? You want to call these people all these nasty words? So what do you think is going to happen to these people? They're going to stay with Trump. But you had a 85, 90-year history where those people voted for you. 
And 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 Secretary Clinton was so confident of that that she didn't even go to Wisconsin. But what was she it left about Wisconsin Trump? open to us? What was it about Trump that that drew them? Do you think? Because I, I get be, your point be, about the well, Democrats. What was about him is he went into those areas. The Democrats had no business going in those areas. Their consultants told them, "You own those areas. Those areas are blue. They're navy blue. You don't you don't have to worry about Trump. He's a." Gilded guy with a golden toilet seat and you're going to win those people. And you don't even have to talk to them. You don't even have to go near them. And Trump said, that's that's not going to happen. I'm going to go talk to those people and I'm going to be very aggressive about it. He made eight trips to Wisconsin. She made zero trips to Wisconsin and he related to them. And what he basically said to them is we got to figure out a way to bring these jobs back. We lost 65,000 factories since the United States signed NAFTA 25 years ago. And so what did Trump say? We got to bring these jobs back and I'm here to help you bring the jobs back. And by the way, when he was coming into those towns on Trump Force One and you saw that big Trump sign in gold and black on his plane, those people were like, he's not a blue collar guy, but hey, this guy's rich and successful. He may be able to figure this out and hopefully he'll do a number on these establishment people who haven't helped us for three decades. And that's basically what happened. And on the manufacturing part, I mean, we've got to give – Credit here. Manufacturing jobs are up in absolute terms. Um, the, uh, the reshoring is up. Jobs coming back from overseas is going up at a faster rate than it was under Obama. That's that's true. But at the end of the day, if you look at the broader economic picture, those jobs are never going to fully get back to the level that they were. Manufacturing is a different industry now. It is more automated. 100% There's true. less jobs. So, so what is Trump doing in the long term that's not just a kind of sticking plaster? Well, that, on- that's, that's the problem for Western democracies and Western politicians in general. So you're, you're 100% right. I'm trained as an economist. Yeah. The automation, the globalization, the labor competition now around the six continents that have people – you are creating a situation where the jobs are never going to return to the United States with the same force. Moreover, if you put all the factories back because of automation, you're only going to get about 15 to 20 percent of the jobs returning to those factories. So everything you're saying is 100 percent true. And so uh, the president, if he's asked that question, he's not going to have a great answer for that. But the right answer for that is something that a politician will never tell you, and that is you need a 25-year plan for America and you need a 25-year plan for jobs training and a 25-year plan for infrastructure and a 25-year plan for right-sizing and making the uneven, unfair public education system in the U.S. more fair and more righteous. And so uh, no one's doing that. And so we can't find one person in the United States who is, quote-unquote, running for office that has a 25-year plan for America. I was speaking in Belgium two nights ago. And I asked rhetorically, do you know any politicians that have a 25-year plan? And somebody raised their hand and said, yes, President Xi from China has a 25-year plan. I said, no, you're right. He's got a 25-year plan, a 50-year plan, and a 100-year plan because he's Confucian. But in the West, we're fighting it out on podcasts. We're fighting it out on cable news. And we're fighting it out in these short-term election cycles. And nobody has any vision. So you're 100% right. I cede the floor to you. The jobs are never coming back. And so we need to do something about that that's realistic and honest. It's the same way your politicians are lying to your people. The Brexit is a terrible thing for your people and they're lying to them. They're sitting there saying they're, they're in a Gordian knot now 
because they they have a popular struggle going on. And rather than educating the people and raising the standard of information for each individual voter, they're sitting there in a Gordian knot because they're trying to preserve each other's power base. And I think it's disgusting, to be honest. But so, you know, as you say, you're an economist, you, you know this stuff. I'm, I'm not saying it to score a, a point. I guess what I'm getting at is that True. I can't point you to a politician who's got that 25-year plan. Um, I can't point you to a politician who has all the are answers. You, are you embarrassed by that? I mean, you should be, right? I mean, where I mean, are sure. you? I mean, yeah, aren't we could, you a citizen of this? You're a citizen of the UK, right? Yeah, I'm a citizen of the UK. But aren't you embarrassed by that? I mean, I mean, but, well, our what's country your ta- is in, What's your tax rate, if you don't mind me asking? Because mine's, mine's 53%. So I'm a minority partner in my own life. So yeah. a dollar comes into my life, 53 cents goes to the bad guys. 47 cents goes to the good guys, which happens to be my family. So now I'm a minority partner in my own life. And so aren't you – I mean, I mean, I don't know. For me, I would like to hold these people more accountable for what they're doing with the money, right? It's not even a swamp in, in Washington. It's like a gold-plated hot tub. They're sitting in there smoking cigars and pouring crystal for each other while they're burning up the society. But we talk so, about all of that kind of stuff, you know, the, okay. the short-termism, the, uh, the the kickbacks. Aren't you upset about it, though? Yeah, yeah, sure, I'm okay. upset about it. But right. if it's, you know, it's Are you voting? Are you a guy that gets out and votes? Yeah, I go and vote. Um, yeah, yeah I, vote, I vote in every election. But, but you know, my views here affect the UK. It's a tiny country. We're talking about, you know, the most powerful country. Um, if you you look at um, all of that kind of stuff, the short-termism, the, the, the kickbacks and all the rest of it, doesn't, hasn't Trump made all that worse? Like he goes out and he coarsens the discourse, so it's harder to have these more thoughtful debates. Um, he uh, brings in the White House, as you've written about, is full of kind of cronyism and backstabbing and all the rest of it. Um, hasn't Trump made us got us further from the situation where we could have so, a twenty-five years? So time? let's let's break it down, okay? So on the White House and the staffing in the White House, that's actually really not Trump's fault. So the problem is. If you're going to build a golf course, you're going to hire people that understand how to build a golf course. If you're going to build a condominium, you'll hire people that know how to build a condominium. And so he went out and tried to bring people into his administration that understood government. And so what he's learned in two years is that you can't drain the swamp if you're bringing cesspool operators into the White House. Okay, like this guy, Reince Priebus, was like a freaking disaster, right? I mean, so he's like dumping raw sewage into the swamp. Okay, he was flooding the zone with all these Cretans and all these swamp creatures. And so how are you going to drain the swamp if you hire the creature from the Black Lagoon to run the White House, right? And so now Trump's up against the uh, – between a rock and a hard place because he is a immunological phenomenon for Washington. He is an antigen. He's a billionaire descending into Washington that owes nobody anything and doesn't like the game. And so here's what happens in Washington. They size you up. You walk through the door – they look at you. They say, "Bought can't be bought. Bought can't be bought. If you if you can be bought, they're very very happy. They hand you two cigars from Cuba, three bottles of Cristal. They say, "Come sit in the hot tub with us, and let's trade the money around, and let's do all the falutin things that we do for each other." And who cares about the American people? And so when you look at a guy like me, I cannot be bought. Okay, I actually don't care. Okay, I've already lived the American dream. I'm not a politician, and so they don't like me. And that's totally fine because I, I actually don't like them. But they hate Trump. They hate Trump because he beat them at their game. So when you say the White House is a disaster, some of it really isn't his fault. Look at these people that wrote the anonymous letter about the president. Yeah, That's a disgusting, disloyal act. But you said something else, though, which I agree with. You said that the coarseness of the rhetoric and the unstrategic use of Twitter – and going after President Macron and, you know, we could – you and I could sit here and have 50 different examples of nonsense that the president's doing 
off his Twitter account or the bellicosity of his rhetoric. And so I don't agree with any of that. Now, if you follow me or you follow my public statements or you follow me on Twitter, I say he's got to tone it down. He's the president of the United States. He used to yell at us on the campaign uh, plane. He would shoot a tweet and he used to love the fact that like two minutes later, the tweet would bounce off the satellite. We'd be watching CNN and it would show up on CNN. And he'd all laugh and he'd look at me and say, is that presidential? And I'd say, no, it's not presidential. And he would like, well, that's exactly right. If it was presidential, then I couldn't be president. Okay, I got to knock these people off the field. So I get what he did and I admire it because it's great political instincts. But he's now the leader of the free world and he's got to hold himself to the mantle of that leadership. And so I disagree with the war on the media and I disagree with the coarseness of the rhetoric. And I've said that very publicly and I've said it to him personally. He's really listening to me, by the way, and he's taking my I, advice I on this tell, stuff. Yeah. When did you last speak very, to him? Yeah. When did you last give him this advice? Uh, last Wednesday. Well, how's yeah. he feeling at the moment? How's I mean, he that, I mean, do you think he listens to anybody? <laughs> uh, probably not. Yeah. Oh, he's listening to himself. He's got a very good brain yeah. and he's a very stable genius. And so that's why he's doing so well. Just he's gonna not going to listen to me and he's not going to listen to you and he doesn't listen to anybody. He's going to run it the way he thinks is the right way to run it. Because that's how he's been running his life for the last 50 years. And by the way, it's been pretty successful for him. He went from being a billionaire real estate developer and a brand licensor to a television star to the American presidency. So sure. when you have that level of success and that string of hits, it's pretty hard to listen to people. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're obviously enjoying it. So please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes so that more people can find out about the Intelligence Squared podcast. And now back to the show. So I want to get on to uh, the midterms. Um, and uh, you were pretty rude about the Democrats in the run-up to the midterms quite a bit. You said the best thing the Republicans have going for them is the Democrats. Then the night came around and the day after, and it looked a little bit like you might be right. They they won the House. They went back in the Senate, but they didn't win the House by that much. It was all a bit underwhelming. The blue wave became a blue trickle. We're now a good few days later, and it's clear that they did do extremely well. They got the same... Uh, lead in the popular vote as the Republicans did back in 2010. Um, they far outstripped Hillary Clinton's lead in the popular vote. You going to take back your remarks? Were you, were you too rude about them? No, I'm, I'm not going to take back my remarks. I don't really know if I was rude. I was just being observational. I think that they're very fractious. They're fighting with each other and they've moved themselves too far to the left. And so none of them will read my book. But if they read my book, because I believe this is like an all-party, all-season book, if they'd read my book, they would see the design plans for their reemergence inside my book because they are leaving a wide open berth for President Trump to sit on his lead with lower income and middle income people. And so to me, uh, the United States is a center right country as it relates to business and it's a probably center left country as it relates to social ideas. And so the Democrats are shooting so far to the left right now, they're basically way out on the horizon. It's going to be very, very hard for them to get a candidate or a nominee that's going to be acceptable to that 6 to 8% of the people that you need to win the presidency. So, so no. And I will take issue with what you're saying because let's say after all these recounts are retaliated and so forth, they got 38 uh, House seats that they won. Uh, President Obama lost 63 House seats. He lost seven governorships. And so I, I take your point on the popular vote and I take your point on the loss of suburban women during the midterm election. But if you really study election cycles going back to 1900, the midterm election 
is less a referendum on the president and his potential electoral success at the end of the cycle, and it's more a balance-checking uh, exercise by the American people. And that's been by and large true for, I don't know, I would say 120 years. So, okay. so the president, in my opinion, he didn't do great. I'm not here to BS you and try to spin things that he did great. I didn't say that. He could have done way worse. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of these Republicans had is that they didn't fully embrace him. If they if they embraced him more, in my opinion, they would have done better. I just want to say one more thing. The Ron DeSantis situation, I believe, will be resolved in his favor. And the governor of Ohio, whose name is escaping right at this moment, those two victories are virtually guaranteeing uh, the 2020 electoral success for President Trump. You look at someone like um, Martha McSally in Arizona, who did embrace President mm-hmm. Trump, up against a very moderate independent Democrat, mm-hmm. who's now the first Democrat to win that state since 1988. Mm-hmm. Your point about suburban women there, which we kind of skipped over, that was what swung it in that state. You know, you've got uh, Trump's sort of rural base, in many cases, really rallying behind him. In other cases, you've got suburban fights where you've got moderate Republicans, their districts swinging to the Democrats. Mm-hmm. That as a pattern, sure, I take your point, midterms are not a vote on the presidency, but as a pattern, as a, you know, verdict on Republican policy, that's worrying for 2020, isn't it? So I I totally, we're not going to have a fight on that one. I totally agree with you on that. The only thing I would say about the McSally situation is that Jeff Flake really destroyed that seat for the Republicans. And so, you know, I don't need to take you through the specific and granular detail of what happened in the nomination process and in the primary process. But uh, unfortunately, the senatorial candidate McSally came into the race pretty damaged. And so it was unclear whether or not that could have been salvaged during the general election. But you're making a broader point, which I think the Republicans have to be really worried about. So they've got something on the good side of the ledger is that they've stolen a good portion of the Democrats' base. Democrats aren't listening. They're calling those people deplorables and racist. That's That's not good for the Democrats. The Democrats are winning the suburban housewife and the suburban woman vote, at least they did in the midterm elections. And that has to raise a five-alarm fire bell in Trump 2020. has to. And so my prediction is the president's like a Swiss army knife politically. He'll pull out another piece of his utility in his, in his toolbox there and he'll start shifting gears. He said about a week ago to Sinclair Broadcasting that his tone was probably a little bit too rough. Uh, and hopefully he'll start to modify his tone. Now, thus far, since he said it, he hasn't done that, but we'll have to see because my guess is he will start to do that because this guy likes winning and he'll figure out a way to adapt himself uh, to regain those votes that he needs. I mean, yeah, because since he said that, he's been uh, talking about electoral fraud or some sort of complications in in Florida without any evidence. He hasn't yet how do you think he's feeling after the midterms? Do you think he's going to be frustrated? There's some reports that well, he is, but you I can't mean, always you know, trust look, him. I mean, look, I, I, you know, I talked to him last Wednesday, so that was a day after the midterms. I think he was very happy that it wasn't worse. I think by and large, he's a political realist. And so I think if you're listening to our conversation, you say, yeah, I didn't do as well as I would have liked to have done. I would like, likely would have kept the House. But you have to also remember – He's up against it. You know, uh, I'll ask you something rhetorically. Do you think the establishment Republicans like President Trump? I, I mean, I think we're pretty aware that they don't. OK. So we all know that they don't. I've asked that question all over the United States. No one raises their hand and say, oh, yeah, the establishment Republicans like the, the president. So, you know, one of the things was he didn't have the Speaker of the House out there actively campaigning. Uh, his White House chief of staff is arguably the least 
political. He may be the most apolitical chief of staff in history. And so what you know about that position is that there's a huge jar of sugar cookies in that office that can get passed out into those districts. And so you had a weakened, effectively neutered House speaker, and you had a White House chief of staff that was not helping the president. And so when you think about the magnitude of what the president did in the last three weeks to help the Republican Party, I think it's pretty impressive. And I'll, and I'll just say one other thing. He has a 90 percent approval rating with the Republican Party. But if you're making the case that uh, there's a red light on the dashboard as it relates to suburban women, I think there is. And I think he's got to make an adjustment. So I think he's probably feeling a little tired. Um, I would have never put him out there in that uh, press situation on the Wednesday after the election. He had done, uh, I don't know, he was on the road 26 days. I think he did 11 or 12 stops in eight days. Uh, and he's a 72-year-old guy. I would, have, I would have strongly suggested to him take a day off uh, before you do that press conference. What's it, just as an aside, what, what's his problem with the press, do you think? Because you, you, you write in the book that it kind of – some of the wacko ideas about the press come from the alt-right wing of the, 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 the White House and so on. But but he seems personally somewhat antagonistic. What is it, what is it that he doesn't every, like? You know, what, everybody's, Rose, everybody's Rosie O'Donnell. You, know, you probably don't know the situation with him and Rosie O'Donnell. She said something mean and nasty about him. And so he has attacked her straight on for a decade. And so what happens with him, everybody thinks he has a thin skin. He does not have a thin skin. He's got a skin like an armadillo. So what happens with him is that you say something mean and nasty about him. He gets his gloves on. He starts punching back. He starts hitting you like you're Rosie O'Donnell. And so 92% of the press, and that's not me. Don't go by me. I'm talking about the Harvard University study is biased and negative towards the president. And so what he does is he's not going to take it. He's going to fight back and he's going to punch back at them. He yells at me and he says, yeah, you're telling me to be nice, but George Bush was nice and they rolled him after the 2006 election. I have to fight back. I have to let them know that I'm not going to take their guff. I'm going to give it to them four times harder than they're giving it to me. I still, even though even though he has his point there, I still disagree with him because he is the leader of the free world. He has unbelievable economic progress. You admitted that jobs have returned. Uh, what we didn't talk about is the bottom 10 percent of the society has experienced 5.5 percent wage growth in the last year. Don't That's go, to some extent a continuation of a trend under Obama though. If we look at I, wage growth, if we look okay, at – OK. Hold on a second. See, but I'm not a politician. So I'm not going to sit here and rail on President Obama. Sure. OK. So I'm going to tell you that President Obama did a very good job of stewarding the economy after the financial crisis. And the wage growth that you're talking about, President Obama deserves some credit for. However, what the president didn't understand, because he's such an academic guy, is he didn't have a lot of trust in people like me. He didn't have a lot of trust in entrepreneurs and what he saw as fat cat business people. And so what he did is he manacled the economy with excess regulation. Okay, And so by taking the regulation off and taking the regulators off the economy, you went from one5 to 2% growth to 4% growth. And Obama said, President Obama said during the campaign, what is he going to do? Wave a magic wand and we're going to return to three and a half, four percent growth. And and that's that's a sign that the president, due to his academic lilt, to his personality, great guy, by the way. I went to law school with him, okay? I like him a great deal. But he had an academic and bureaucratic lilt to his personality and a distrust of the free market and greedy people like me. I think, and so, I think and we, so that's the difference between him and and, and, and Trump. To some but extent, I, I, give him, I give President Obama credit for the wage rise. I'm not one of those uh, uh, spin meister Republicans pretending that a, the president didn't do a good job. We got to see a little bit about the long term Trumponomics stuff, though, right? I mean, we had the short term <clears> sort of sugar hit. We got to wait and see if investment is up and, and all the rest of it. But but 
I agree with that, by the way, because it typically takes 12 to 18 months for a tax reform program like the one he's implemented to really kick into full gear. And I would say this because I'm really trying to be as objective as possible. You're doing very good. Uh, we're, we're very concerned. As an economist, you'd have to be very concerned about the lack of full repatriation of capital off the shore of the United States back into the country. And so that's one of the reasons why these opportunity zones that people are working on, and this is a fund that I've established, you know, after I got fired and you know, ripped up by the press and, you know, rolled and broken glass, when I got back to my my office, I I started an opportunity zone fund, which we're launching on December 1st to take advantage of these new uh, tax code incentives to put capital into depleted areas and indigent areas of the United States. And so when those things kick in, I think that they could be very positive uh, long-term for wages and for growth in the U.S. Which we've got to wait and see because there's, there, there was, there's been zone, investment well, zone policies since the You'll invite the me back. Maybe we'll, my, go to, maybe we'll go to church together, you and me. You'll invite there we me go. back. But my main yeah. – my, my point is we can talk about all this economy stuff, which, which you – think is very important. You you are a great you know advocate for Trump's economic record. He didn't talk about this during the campaign much. He talked a lot about immigration mm-hmm. um, and he didn't talk about solving immigration. He talked about sending troops to the border as a media stunt on this caravan. If he actually wanted to solve the issue of caravan migration, he'd be uh, reforming the asylum system so it was handled quicker. He'd be striking a safe country deal with Mexico. What he did was just sort of bang the drum with the most extreme rhetoric he could and it turned people off, didn't it? People didn't – the Republican Party is now less know. trusted on immigration than they I, were. I, I don't know. You could make a case that he turned people off. I mean the strategy that he used – again, I'm not necessarily saying I agree with the strategy. But you have to remember he became the American president in 17 short months. He was a CEO and a TV star. He declares himself for president. 17 short months later, he's president. So he knows a lot more than I do about presidential politics and presidential strategy. But you know, to me – um, I think he looked at the positive aspects of the economy and all the prosperity and he said, you know, people that are complacent and happy don't vote. But people that are pulsed out with anger over a situation or have anxiety about something often do. And so I don't know what the Republican voter participation would have been without that sort of rhetoric coming from the president. I honestly don't know. But my guess is it would have probably been a little bit less. And here's the disgusting part of the whole story. They were talking last week about the 49 percent participation being staggeringly high. How embarrassing is that, that 51 percent of the people that are registered to vote don't vote? And this is what these bananas in Washington love. They want the normal people that have normal mainstream views not to vote because that's how you keep the ridiculous people in power forever. But to do that, you got to say stuff about immigration that, that isn't getting us anywhere. No, what you have saying. to do is you have to do what the Australians do or what the Belgians do. You have to have mandatory voting. You have to fine people if they don't vote. And then what ends up happening is you liquidate the product line of these two bozo parties and you start getting more mainstream ideas. You know, I mean, look, the, I mean, the part, the country's center right on business, center left on social issues, but the parties are not. You know, they're, they're wackaloons. If we look at immigration policy in the administration now, but right like the, the the wing of the party or the wing of the administration that you don't like, the, the hard right section of it, they're winning hands down, right? You're looking at whether you're talking about illegal immigration, but also legal immigration, taking away spousal rights to work and all the rest of it. It's a pretty hard line um, administration right now, right? The, the, the people you don't like are 
are calling the shots. Well, I mean, let me say this to you. I, I think there is a balance. I mean, there's aspects of what's going on on the immigration side that I actually do like. Stuff about the spousal right to work, things like that, or they denied, I guess, some of the uh, embassy people's families' rights to be in the country and or work. That stuff I don't necessarily like. But I will say this, uh, and the president will ultimately get some credit for this, by cutting the slack at the border, by curtailing illegal immigration, he took all of the slack out of the labor market. And those labor markets tightened up. And African-American and Hispanic-American unemployment numbers went to historic lows. And so it's less about the fundamentals in the economy, which are quite good, and it's more about the fact that you didn't have migrant workers coming in working for cash, uh, and you forced uh, uh, people uh, across the whole chain of labor demand, okay, to hire Americans. And so you have to give the president credit for those things. But if you're making a point that we're too far to the right on certain issues – I totally agree with you. But I would also say the same thing about the the Democrats. These people are nuts. You know, at the end of the day, you got to have a market-based, market-incentivized economy because there are no equal outcomes. You're never going to politicize equal outcomes. And when you move towards socialization, you dull out all the innovation in the economy and you dull out all the incentives. You don't want that. So just to quickly point out the African-American Employment rate is another trend that's been continuing since President Obama to some extent. But but look. It got way better. It was trending like this and then it got way better under Trump because he cut the slack at the at, at the at the immigrant. And by the way, you know who did a uh, massive deportation of immigrants? President yeah, I mean, Obama. Yeah, there was there was two, there wasn't enough coverage two, of that. That was two, unfair. Two million. Did two million. And by the way, he's the one that implemented the child separation policy. He he revoked it once he saw what was going on. And then you got, you know, crazy people like uh, John Kelly and his girlfriend, you know, putting it back in. That was crazy. You know, but once the president figured it out, he revoked it again. So, I mean, those are those are very bad policies. Okay, I, I, I totally disagree with that. You can't separate women from their children at the border. What kind of nonsense is that? It's anti-American, frankly. That we're getting towards the end of our time here. Have you, you had fun? You having fun? I'm having a great time. Good stuff. I mean, you know, we could add a little bit of vodka or something like that. That would have made it a little bit livelier. It's a shame. Yeah, that would have been cool. Um, short of vodka, let's uh, let, let's kidding, have kidding. the uh, the the adrenaline rush of talking about the next uh, the next election over the next two years. Yeah. Um, what? Firstly, what do the Democrats have to do? Who do the Democrats have to pick to beat Trump? And secondly, is there anything you want Trump to do differently? So I don't. I don't. I don't. Again. I don't know who they can pick that can beat him. Let me just explain why. He's going to have $2 billion in his war chest. He's raised $210 million thus far. He's got Air Force One, and he has the power of his name recognition and his personality. One thing I can tell you about Air Force One that's different from a campaign plane, people show up for Air Force One. When it's coming into your neighborhood and the American president's coming off the plane, you're going to take 10 minutes off and go check the guy out. Not true for a quote-unquote presidential candidate. And you can go from 1880 to 2012. And Barack Obama said this. uh, There has been no president that has lost the presidency, lost the incumbency of the presidency in a rising economy. Not one. And if you don't believe me, just go look. Go look at on Wikipedia. Look at where the GDP numbers were. Look at the election results each time. You know, Carter loses, you're in a recession. Uh, Bush loses, he gets Ross Perot to join, you're in a recession. Hoover loses, you're in a depression. 
Uh, but if you really look, these people get reelected consistently, provided that you have a rising economy. Because by and large, as it relates to presidential leadership, if things are going okay to good, the American people don't want to change uh, midstream. And so I think it's going to be very, very hard to beat him. Now, is there something in the Mueller investigation that I'm not aware of that's a bombshell that could destroy him? I don't know. But my guess is no, because I know Washington well enough that after 18 or 20 months, something like that would have leaked out into the system. That's my honest belief. So we'll have to see if I'm right about that. So barring anything related to legality or impeachable offense, I think it's going to be very tough to beat him. And I'll leave you with one last thought. The person that runs against him will have an internationally recognized nickname for the rest of their lives. Okay, he's going to destroy the person because that's that's what he's capable of doing. He is a different style of politician than what's being represented in the Democratic field right now. Okay, a good thought to leave on, I guess. Um, Anthony, thanks a lot for coming in. Okay, great to be here. I appreciate you. Thank you. Cheers. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.